knows anything about comedy knows that Pam Tastics books the best of San Francisco and beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pam Tastics deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for near five dollars every Friday to ten p.m. And I laugh because five dollars—I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> heard that correct. Zebas are hands-free. When the road gets dark And you can no longer see Just let my love throw a spark And have a little faith in me When the tears you cry Give these loving arms a try, baby And have a little faith in me 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 Cannot speak so easily. Come here, darling, from a whisper start. To have a little faith in me. And when your back's against the wall, 
Such a long time, girl, expecting nothing in return, just for you to have a little faith in me. You see, time, time is our friend, cause for us there is no end, and all you gotta do is have a little faith in me. I said, uh, I will hold you up, I will hold you up, and you love Give me strength enough to have a little faith in me. I said, hey, all you gotta do for me, girl, is have a little bit of faith in me. I said, I said,
Okay, we're looking for the weight here. Anyway, this is Labor and Love Radio. If we find it, we'll play it. Um, this is Labor and Love Radio coming to you on a Saturday morning during the plague year. <coughs> Labor and Love Radio coming from 2781 21st Street, a place we call Mutiny Radio. Reachable on Mutiny radio.fm a true community arts center a place for people to come and find their voices a place where people can come and try out new things a place where people can come all virtual of course these days people can come and test out their comedic chops. Labor and Love Radio at Mutiny, 2781 21st Street. Come on down, see what you can do even in these plague tide times. Okay. We're looking for. Not getting it, huh? Just Place where I can lay my head. Hey, mister, can you tell me where I'm in my final bed? He just grinned and shook my hand. He knows all he said. Take a load off, Danny. Take a load for free. Take a load.
Good morning, mutineers. That was our uh, opening set. We started out with John Hyatt singing Have a Little Faith in Me. Um, then we moved on to the Indications. Rand Jones and Indications were there sort of poem about waking up in America and you can't see the dawn. And this was pre-coronavirus. And after that, we had the wait. The wait tells us exactly what to do, exactly how to get through this coronavirus pandemic. And that's by helping each other. People didn't get through the depression. A lot of people didn't get through the depression because of the New Deal. Although the New Deal was historic in terms of extending wealth and extending uh, opportunity to working people. Roosevelt took one look at all those working people out on the street staging, you know, demonstrations and bonus marches and you know he saw that they were people in need and extended the government toward them but that's not what got people through the depression what people what got people through the depression was this wonderful sense this wonderful collective feeling we're all in this together we're working people so we help each other out that kind of got lost in the 
affluence. 50s, 60s, 70s, affluence. Till now, here we are at 2020. What got people through was that they helped each other out. They shared the weight. Somebody had something, they shared it with those around them. It was the genius of American working people that got them through the Depression. And that's a genius we need to tap into now. That collective, that collective feeling. Nobody left behind. You know, we're all in this together, like Jesse J Jackson said. Well, we didn't all come over on the same boat, but we're all in the same boat now. And so we are. And we always were, in one sense. In the sense of being workers together. So, I mean, people are looking on this as a very bad time, but I say let's look at it in terms of transformation. It lays bare all the vicious contradictions of capitalism. It puts it where it is. It lets us know what we're doing. Oh, stay out of work, say the scientists, but wait a minute, say the capitalists. We're not producing any wealth. I'm not producing any wealth. I'm not getting any wealth. What's going on? Where does wealth come from? Hello? The pandemic only, only emphasizes the fact that wealth comes from work. Wealth comes from workers working. Wealth comes from labor. So this is the Labor and Love Show. That was my long introduction. I'm, I am Bill Morgan, a.k.a. The Bee, bringing you Labor and Love, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, you're on the menu, and chances are you're off, you're gone. You've been fired. 26 million people, 26 million people applied for unemployment in the last three weeks. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Believe me, it all works better when you're both friends of labor. Of course they want us to work. Okay, see, one of the tricks, one of the tricks involved here, say, for example, in Georgia, where some businesses are opening up, they can say to you, oh, well, you're, you're working, right? Come back to work, come back to work. And if you say, wait a minute, I, I don't want to go back to work. I don't trust the fact that the virus is wiped out by any measure. And they can say, well, we're going to have to give your job to someone else. You can't collect unemployment anymore, remember? Huge unemployment checks going 
huge amounts, huge amount of, of money going out, huge amounts of money in the bailouts, the 1,200 bailout, and of course, huge amounts of money going directly to big business. We all know about that. But the money's not supposed to be flowing that way, see? The capitalists sit around and say, this, wait a minute, this isn't the way it's supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be paying people not to come to work. In reality, what they're doing is they're paying you for not revolting. They're paying you so you don't rebel against the system. People start people start rebelling against the system when the system can't provide for them. They're willing to work. They have work. They have histories of work. People have worked all their lives. Now aren't able to get work. Why is that? Because the work's not there. The virus has taken away all the work. So now what do you do? Do you you give workers money? Yeah, you better. You give workers a safety net that should have been there all the time? Yeah, you better. You better do that, and if you're not going to do that, you better get them back to work. Forget the coronavirus, says the mayor of La uh, Las Vegas. She's putting her community forward as a, a test group. I wonder if she asked the uh, people of Las Vegas about that. Good question. In fact, any governor or anyone in charge who tells people to go back to work now is basically telling them to risk their lives. And people are doing it. People in the hospitals, the frontline workers, you know, the nurses, the doctors, the technicians, all those people are putting their lives at risk by going to work. And we'll see now. I mean, uh, people in Ohio made a big point of resisting all this and Florida, the governors of Florida and Georgia are complicit. Governor of Georgia recently said he didn't know that the virus could be carried by someone who was asymptomatic. What should be coming from our leaders? We can go into that ad infinitum. But whatever it is, it's not the advice to inject yourself with with alcohol or with uh, hand cleaners or sanitizers. It's not to put ultraviolet light inside your body. That's what the government... And then he says he was joking. Well, what's he up there joking about? When people are dying, what's the joke? Okay, well that's our that's our long wrap for today.
want to play one that's similar to, you know, this is Mercedes Sosa. One of the great challenges in this world is knowing enough about a subject. Sorry. Here we go. Todo cambia. Everything changes. Cambia lo superficial. Cambia también lo profundo. Cambia el modo de pensar. Cambia todo en este mundo. Lejos que me encuentre, 
ni el recuerdo ni el dolor de mi pueblo y de mi gente. Lo que cambió ayer tendrá que cambiar mañana, así como cambio yo en esta tierra lejana. Cambia todo, cambia. Cambia todo, cambia. Cambia todo, cambia. Pero no cambia mi amor, por más lejos que me encuentre, ni el recuerdo ni el dolor de mi pueblo y de mi gente. Y lo que cambio
Okay, that was the Newtown Neurotics uh, living with unemployment. And what I'm looking for right now is living with unemployment, what it's like to be unemployed, huh? What it's like. Um, the Chinese communist regime is killing one. people and harp. Okay, let's see if we can finish Donna Summer. Donna Summer, our equipment is acting up. Hard for the money.
Strasser was arrested on stage. Death threats against both her and her family. She was arrested along with those attending the concert. The release came about only through international intervention. Banned in her own country, she moved to Paris and then to Madrid. She returned in 1982, several months before the military regime collapsed as a result of the Falklands War. Continued to tour in Argentina and abroad. By that time, the junta had fallen. She was a, a supporter of Perón. She favored leftist causes throughout her life. Opposed to the election of Nestor Kirchner, who became president in 2003. Mercedes Sosa. Died, let's see. Suffering from recurrent endocrine and respiratory problems in later years, the 74-year-old Sosa was hospitalized in Buenos Aires on September 18, 2009. Died from multiple organ failure. One, one uh, commentator said she lived her 74 years to the fullest. She had done practically everything she wanted. She didn't have any type of barrier or any type of fear that limited her. And say this Sosa. And she her song was uh, Todo Cambia. Everything changes. Okay, it's about time now for our enough talk, huh? Enough singing. about time for radio labor and let's see if we can get radio labor to vote let's see radio labor right here this is a radio labor world report recorded on friday april 24th 2020 i'm mark Boulanger. In the report this week, union lessons from the Ebola crisis need to be heard. How global unions are working remote. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. For every stitch of clothing, someone sweats away unseen. All the tangled threads of justice unravel at the seams. From the slums of New York City to the streets of Bangladesh. This is Radio Labor. As the world confronts the COVID-19 pandemic, unions are urging governments to look at the lessons that were learned during the Ebola crisis of 2018. Unions warned about the outbreak months ahead of time and called for an end to the austerity which was exacerbating the problem. 
A few months after the Ebola outbreak, which was contained to mainly Western Africa, Public Services International, the PSI, made a presentation to UNCTAD, the main UN body dealing with trade, investment, and development issues. The PSI is the labor organization which represents national public service unions at the world level. PSI Assistant General Secretary Daniel Bertosa made the presentation to the UNCTAD conference. When a government finds itself in the face of a, of a shock, an unexpected shock, the ability of it to have built its resilience in advance impacts critically on the way in which it's able to, to deploy its resources and take action at that time. And to, to look at those crises, circumstances, without some deeper discussion about the systemic approaches leaves you a little bit unsatisfied. So uh, allow me to, to, to make some specific points. The first is that there is a general need to build capacity to plan and coordinate in any crisis response. And that requires strong central government. And this is often attacked when times are good as bureaucracy or a waste of public resources. But the absence of that ability to plan and coordinate in advance uh, is critical when a shock Kits. Similarly, the ability to coordinate between a central government and local government is absolutely critical. And that often means for, uh, in the developing world, a well-funded uh, tier of local government. It is often the local circumstances that are critical. It's often the local knowledge that saves lives in the first few days of a natural disaster. It's often the ability to understand those circumstances that are critical. Yet too often we see municipal government underfunded, simply not receiving the, the transfers from, from central government because of a vertical fiscal imbalance. Um, and it, it's critical. We saw it with Ebola uh, in, in West Africa when we saw the, that in, in countries that had higher level of health investment but more fragmented health systems because they weren't centrally planned and controlled, their ability to deal with Ebola was, was much worse. We also saw that workers weren't involved. And I think the involvement of workers in your systems and in your government uh, cannot be underestimated. Again, with Ebola, it was the workers through their trade unions who were trying to alert the global community to the Ebola crisis three months before it was acknowledged by the international organisations. And these workers through their unions knew about it because they were the organisations that had people dying in the most remote areas of Ebola-affected West Africa. And because these unions were not legally recognised, because these workers did not have trade union rights, uh, often they were not being paid, they were simply ignored for, for two or three months. And that exacerbated the crisis because the basic premises of social dialogue simply were not in place in some of those countries. Um, and similarly, the commitment. We had 600 of our members died in, in the Ebola crisis. Um, the majority of them did not, were not provided with basic protective equipment, were not paid for their work, were working unpaid, were denied their basic trade union rights. You can't buy that level of commitment. Those workers continue to work in the face of that adversity. You can't buy that through a market. You can't pay someone enough to do that. They continue to work because they had a commitment to the public good and they were part of a public system that fostered that commitment. Like all other labor organizations, the global unions are trying their best to represent their members while their staff work from home. For example, the International Trade Union Confederation has almost all its staff working remotely. 
the ITUC, is the body which represents national union centers, such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress at the world level. Sharon Burrow, the ITUC's General Secretary, was interviewed by Sari Parker of the World Economic Forum about the challenges of working from home. Sharon, first off, could you tell us quickly where you are and what daily working life is like for you right now? Well, I'm now uh, working remotely at home in Brussels, so all our staff are working remotely except those of our security team and the uh, occasional IT uh, uh, dependency, but basically it's a challenge now to manage, as everybody is, a global office of people in their own homes. And while we have the technology, it really does play up the opportunities, but also the costs and the potential risks of people being atomized from their place of work in, uh, in you know, 100%. What have you found like the single toughest nut to crack in this situation? Well, I think the first week was just the sheer intensity of making sure that not only we were dealing with an unprecedented crisis, but we were making sure colleagues were connected. While we're very lucky, really, to have a close-knit staff, I think the mental cost, the mental health cost of this crisis will play out in the months to come. So I think just making sure people are connected, that you stay in touch, is actually critical, but it's also a big slice of time. Mm -hmm. And those human interactions we take for granted on a daily basis, you know, passing someone in the coffee corner, having a quick briefing, you know, meeting people uh, on the way to work, whatever the daily rhythm might be, you don't actually realise how efficient that interaction can be until you're trying to manage that uh, remotely because there's a lot more talking. I've counted at last count 10 different methodologies whereby people can connect with me, talk to me, seek answers. And in any one day, that's a big challenge. But I must say, I think for people with young children, this is an incredible time. Having been a parent and indeed a teacher, then uh, I understand the challenge of basically we could be in a four, five, six, eight-week school holiday period. So balancing work and family takes on a whole new realm of challenges. So some good things, but some incredibly worrying things about you know, the world being basically shut down. What can workplaces do to better support parents during this time? Well, I think we have to think about how you provide a mix of work and parenting that works in each case. You know, where there are two parents, of course, then that perhaps a rostering of time with children because the children matter as well. Their mental health matters. Their need for uh, support and activity scheduling and just indeed attention is very important for their own health and development. So I think you have to be conscious that for parents, you can't have a 24-7 operation where they can actually be online, available to work, uh, and particularly for us in a global organisation, then that adds uh, additional challenges. But the human aspects of those issues must be front and centre. So people must feel the security to say, I can't work for these hours, I'm available for these hours. And then, of course, you have those of our staffs who are sick. We don't have serious cases yet, but we have people with 
symptoms and part of their day will often be fatigue if they're able to work. And so covering the work schedule for those employees is also very, very important. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labour Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world. Here's just a small sample of their hard work. Our top story sections included links to coverage of the re-arrest of an Iranian union activist and leader in the lead-up to May Day, the start of the global mobilization for International Workers Memorial Day, and statements from the ITUC and global and national unions about their plans for a May Day in the shadow of COVID-19, including the virtual May Day that Labour Start, the International Trade Union Confederation, and the Global Union Federations are preparing. The big story about the pandemic's effects on workers this week was the crisis within a crisis, being faced by millions of migrant construction, healthcare, and domestic workers. Originating in countries like the Philippines, Pakistan, and Nigeria, they have been left without an income by the pandemic. For the most part, they do not qualify for any social benefits in the country where they have been working and are unable to travel home. Unions in both their home countries and in the receiving countries are struggling to provide them with support and with the option of repatriation. Around the world, global unions are organizing coordinated actions against corporations like Amazon that are ignoring the health needs of workers in the rush to profit from the crisis. At the same time, the global union federations have been able to achieve global agreements providing frameworks within which national unions can negotiate safer workplaces and economic protections for workers. But employers and governments are also mobilizing. Under cover of the COVID-19 pandemic, governments from Canada to Honduras to Brazil to India to Australia are undermining labor rights. In Australia, employers may now propose alternative non-union collective agreements, and workers will have only 24 hours to decide whether to accept the concessions forced on them, all without the involvement of their union. As well, we are carrying too many stories about crackdowns on trade unions as governments take advantage of the attention the pandemic has been receiving to eliminate or to intimidate critics of their pro-business policies. One example of this being Hong Kong, where the General Secretary of the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions has been arrested. Our current photo of the week is of Chilean trade union leader Barbara Figueroa. Comrade Figueroa has been awarded the prestigious Arthur Svensson International Prize for Trade Union Rights in recognition of her commitment as the leader of the CUT, Chile's central labor body, in fighting for social justice. Finally, today is the anniversary of the 2013 Rana Plaza disaster when 1,134 Bangladeshi garment workers, most of them women, died and 2,500 were injured. The building collapse is believed to be the most deadly garment industry workplace mass murder in history. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here are the low tide drifters with every stitch. Swept through a sweatshop where young women 
That's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity. That was uh, Radio Labor, our weekly news report about the labor movement all over the world not just here in the U.S. And I had, uh, let's see, I had I had uh, the return, the return of <coughs> Newsbroke uh, with Francesca Fiorentini, always a favorite of this show. And So we had news broke, and is the economy trying to kill us, she says. How COVID-19 deniers are also. Also a virus, and a virus that may kill us, huh? That's a tough choice. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and this is Newsbroke's Helter Shelter series, coming to you from my one-bedroom L.A. apartment, which, after three weeks of self-quarantine, I have converted into my very own post-apocalyptic Pee-wee's Playhouse. Today's secret word is... Sacrifice! Now, you all know what you need to do when you hear the secret word, right? Today we're looking at how defeating coronavirus will mean deflating the Dow, and yet accepting that reality is something the president and the hardline conservatives advising him are trying to prevent at all costs. Yes, even our lives. There still is yet to be a nationally coordinated effort to end the pandemic through mass testing, mass production of medical supplies, or nationwide lockdowns, which many experts say need to happen for months. 
That's partially why the US has the most cases of coronavirus so far in the world, and counting. Instead, Trump first floated the idea of loosening social distancing restrictions by Easter Sunday, because there's no better way to celebrate Jesus than by letting millions meet him in the afterlife. Trump then graciously agreed to extend the CDC guidelines to April 30th. Now, maybe that was based on science, but it was probably because he realized Tiffany was going to be visiting for Easter, and you know that would have been an awkward encounter. Oh wonderful, we can all hug again! Yes, Tiffany, right after the egg hunt. Is she still looking at me? Either way, press conference after press conference has proven that Trump's brain truly is a magnificent cocktail of ignorance to the reality of COVID-19 and callous disregard for the human lives it claims. If we could hold that down, as we're saying to 100,000, it's a horrible number. Maybe even less, but to 100,000. So we have between 100 and 200,000. Uh, we all together have done a very good job. All right, first of all, that's not even an achievable number without nationally coordinated action. And secondly, that's not a number to brag about. Also, rest assured that no matter how many people die from coronavirus, Trump will absolutely claim he did a good job. Compared to the Black Plague, we're doing great. Compared to the Spanish flu, we're doing fantastic. Compared to the meteor that wiped out all the alleged dinosaurs, we're winning big league. But Trump's thinking is honestly more sinister than crass, because there's one number that he and his cronies, and even media pundits, care a lot about. The stock market. And they talk about its recent slide using an alarming metaphor. Stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. Stop the economic bleeding. Global markets just cannot shake the coronavirus. How will the president try to stop the bleeding? Yeah, the market's bleeding so much, you wonder if it's on its period. Because <laughs> she is moody, am I right? Am I? No? No? Insensitive? Okay. It's almost like they care more about markets bleeding than people bleeding. Newsbroke has looked at the stock market before and how it's just a legal casino that gambles away our future so Jerry from Fidelity can get bottle service. The stock market isn't a good indicator for a healthy economy, given that 84% of all stocks owned by Americans belong to the wealthiest 10% of households. Yet, when it comes to coronavirus, the market seems to be the only measurement that worries conservatives. This at a time when the Fed estimates we may hit 32% unemployment, which tops unemployment numbers during the Great Depression. But who cares? How's your portfolio? In fact, some have been letting their free market flag fly a little too high, like Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. We can't lose our whole country. We, we're having an economic collapse. Uh, let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. Uh, and those of us who are 70 plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. Sacrifice? He said the secret word! <laughs> What is he saying? That seniors should be left to fend for themselves like some AARP Thunderdome? The first senior to master TikTok shall be granted a ventilator. The same sentiment was echoed by radio host and less accomplished Tiger King, Glenn Beck. I'm in the danger zone. I would rather have my children stay home and all of us who are over 50 go in and keep this economy going and working even if we all get sick, I'd rather die than kill the country. No, don't say that. What would we do without you? Just so we're clear, these guys are saying they're willing to kill themselves and millions of others, all to please the all-powerful line graph, representing the invisible hand of the free market. How is this not a cult? 
I'm starting to think Jim Jones didn't actually die. He just changed his first name to Dow. Cause like Dow Jones, it's a stock market. This morbid cynicism of putting the economy or rich people's poker chips before human lives isn't just something media commentators have expressed. It's what's guiding the Trump administration's response to coronavirus and the money attached to it. The $2 trillion stimulus package has both Wall Street and lobbyists licking their chops. Even though there are stipulations and oversight committees on the money, Trump has pushed back and said implementation will pretty much be up to him and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. So we just handed over $2 trillion to a corrupt impeached president and his Treasury Secretary who earned the nickname Foreclosure King after the last recession. But on the plus side, I just bedazzled my jean jacket. It's the little things. Just listening to the way this administration explains the goal of the stimulus package gives you a sense of who they hope it helps. The assistance bill here, which does have growth incentives, will help lead us back to a very strong economic rebound before this year is over. I think that too. Thank I think you, we're going to have a tremendous rebound uh, at the end of the year, toward the end of the year. I think we're going to have a rebound like we have never seen before. Even now, it wants to rebound. You can see it and feel it. It wants to rebound so badly. Why are we talking about the stock market like it's getting out of a long-term relationship? It wants to rebound so badly. Dust off that red dress, hook up with some randos, and just YOLO. Maybe the market doesn't need to rebound. Maybe it needs to learn to be alone. We're all doing it. Another thing to know about that clip, besides the very overeager predictions about the market, is that the guy talking about growth incentives is Trump's top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow. No, he's not an economist, but he did play one on CNBC for many years. Kudlow's entire legacy has been about bolstering finance at the expense of people's lives. In 2002, he advocated for the invasion of Iraq because the quote, shock therapy of decisive war will elevate the stock market by a couple thousand points. And in 2011, right after an 8.9 earthquake and tsunami hit Japan, Kudlow said this. The human toll here yeah. looks to be much worse than the economic toll and we can be grateful for that. Grateful? Okay, now we know what the Kudlow family Thanksgiving looks like. Dear Lord, we are grateful for the gang violence in Central America that has provided the migrant labor that has given us this affordable meal. So while everyone in the healthcare community was pleading with Trump for weeks to take coronavirus seriously, Trump instead was listening attentively to people like Kudlow, who consistently puts markets over lives. And this is what he was saying back in early March about COVID-19 from the White House press briefing room. We don't actually know uh, what the magnitude of the virus is going to be, although frankly so far it looks relatively contained. And we don't think most people, I mean, the vast majority of Americans are not at risk for this virus. I mean, do the math. A couple million isn't the vast majority. We'll have 328 million Americans left over. That's plenty of low-wage workers. Finally, it turns out Trump's idea to have everyone back to work by Easter might have been spurred by a meeting earlier that day of some very Machiavellian minds.
The White House earlier today convened a call with major Wall Street and hedge fund investors to get their views on what's happening in the markets and the U.S. economy. These individuals from Wall Street were on the call. Dan Loeb from hedge fund Third Point, uh, Jeff Sprecher from ICE and the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, Jeff Sprecher, you might not have heard of him, but he is the CEO of the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange, which apparently is a thing. Uh, but you might have heard of his wife, Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler, who was one of a handful of senators to sell off stock after being briefed about coronavirus. $3 million of both of her and her husband's holdings. Like, how is that legal? How is any of this legal? It's probably all illegal. Because even the cronies in DC and Wall Street know this economy isn't rebounding. Not while the government continues to have no game plan to test, save lives, and quarantine communities. The economy isn't just a line that goes up or down. The economy is made up of people. People who make businesses and banks a lot of money. People who are now out of work. People who can't make rent this month and who are struggling to get healthy themselves. And people who sure as hell won't be rebounding with $1,200. Maybe it's time to rethink this death duel between people and the economy. And for once, let finance make the sacrifice. Uh-oh! Thank you once again for watching News Broke. We really appreciate it. So make sure to like this video and also share it. Share it with all the people who need to hear it and maybe people who don't want to hear it, but they need to hear it anyway. And because the economy is made up of people, we want to hear from you. How are you doing? Um, do you still have a job? What's going on with unemployment? Um, how is your state handling this current crisis? Let us know in the comments below and we will see you soon. Hang in there. Take a little break here. That was uh, Francesca Fiorentini from LA with her show News Broke. Take a little break here. Okay, we're back. Uh, who's that? I want to say Coleman Hawkins. Uh, I'd have to check on that. Uh, yeah, uh, two of our, our features on this show are the two Francescas. The last was Francesca Fiorentini with her analysis of the situation of workers in this 
pandemic. And here's her, her organization is Newsbook. This one is decoded from NTV by Francesca Fiorent. Do you find Francesca yourself feeling that you're kind chess club? Francesca Ramsey. And what she's doing is a retirement home for Donald Trump supporters. Okay, here we go. Just doesn't look the way you remember it. And part of you wishes you could somehow return to a time when America was great again. Well, now you can. Here at Simpler Times, you'll meet other real Americans who are trying their best to forget the last 50 years of so-called progress, or even pretend they never happened at all. Are you there? What do you think of that President Obama? A president named Obama? That'll be the day. What's next? A woman president? <laughs> <laughs> Finally, a place you can enjoy your golden years without all that PC culture being shoved down your throat. Listen, I'm the furthest thing from a bigot there is, but I'm sick and tired of these transgender people getting to dictate what bathroom everyone uses. It's madness. That's why at Simpler Times, we like to keep things simple, just like they were in the good old days. Here, there's no question which bathroom you should use, no matter who you are. Four bathrooms. Now that is simpler. You can almost taste the simple, can't you? Hey, I'm sorry, but uh, what's down there? Oh, in that wing, things get even simpler. I'd stay down here if I were you, Mr. O'Hanahan. <laughs> Works for me. Finally, at Simpler Times, we know your health is of the utmost importance. And ladies, I hope you trust your husband's judgment because he'll be in charge of all of your medical decisions from now on. Him? But he's an idiot. Also, I'm legally required to inform you that any meds or treatments invented after 1952 are not permitted here. Smoking is allowed and encouraged, including in the cancer ward. Oh, and try not to get polio. We don't have a vaccine for that yet. So, what do you guys think? Are you in? It sounds good to us. Except. I think there's just one thing we would change. Simpler Times Retirement Home. We make it safe to be simple. I can't wait to text the grandkids to come visit us. Simple. That was decoded and uh Francesca was envisioning a, uh, a retirement home for Donald Trump people, people generally who look back on the 50s as a simpler, better time. Slim, simpler and better, of course, because of uh, racism, segregation, uh, cultural nationalism. All kinds of things. Um, so this is a rest home for those people. And at the end it said there was one more thing they wanted to change. And Francesca, who is dark African-American, uh, all of a sudden changed into a white blonde woman. That was the... Uh, that was the, the effect of that. Before that, we had uh, Francesca Fiorentini talking about workers during this pandemic. And uh, 
for that radio labor and uh, for every stitch of clothing people die so yeah we're 30 uh, during regular times 3500 people uh, a day would die because of work related causes 3500 people a day working people in the U.S., the number was about 250 per day. Only 250. <laughs> Remember Dr. Oz saying how, oh, yeah, well, if the kids went back to school, we'd lose 2 or 3%. But that's, for a lot of people, that's acceptable. Appetizing, he said. <laughs> Dr. Oz. Uh, and Mr. Trump now has, uh, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't resist. Mr. Trump has recommended or he's suggesting that we look into injecting uh, cleaner into our veins. That would kill the coronavirus right away. We had to uh, destroy the village in order to save it, department. Talking about UV light, you know, inside the body. Uh, basically, just trying to be a bright, a bright man, right? Just basically trying to contribute. Okay, so let's see what we've got today on uh, Facebook. Oh, I wanted to mention a joke. The Federalist Publishers tweet. Okay, the, fed, the publisher of the right-wing Federalist paper, Constitutional Conservatives, I guess they are, um, who also owns uh, who owns the paper, tweeted. Let's see. Let, let's read it. This is in uh, Bloomberg Law. NLRB says publisher of conservative online magazine The Federalist broke federal labor laws when he tweeted last year that he'd send employees back to the salt mine if they decided to unionize. Judge said Ben Dominic's tweet was an obvious threat not a jo joke or an expression of opinion when viewed in light of workers' legally protected rights. The timing on the tweet, which came the same day of a walkout by union employees at Vox Media, supported the conclusion that Dominic was sending a message to employees. Obviously, they're not being sent literally back to the salt mines, but idioms have hidden meanings, the judge said company will have to post physical notices in its offices and send email copies to employees. The decision is one of several recent rulings from the agency finding businesses or executives liable for violating la labor laws via Twitter. 
often by mentioning some kind of consequence for employee organizing. Barstool Sports recently deleted an anti-union tweet by founder David Portnoy as part of its settlement of a labor board complaint. Ben Dominic. First one of you tries to unionize, I swear I'll send you back to the salt mine. Big joke. Big joke. The company did argue that the tweet was a sarcastic joke, pointing to affidavits from two employees. Chu found that the context of the message suggests otherwise. So, I mean, he didn't have to delete it. All he had to do was send letters to his employees. Now see, this is a situation where someone in power makes a joke and we're hoping, as employees, we're hoping that it's a joke and he doesn't really mean it, but then why did he say it? Well, of course, he said it so that he could tell you not to unionize and then call it a joke. So that, that's what that's about. Mercedes Sosa. Recent move, moves by Mitch McConnell suggest to this writer and Mother Jones that he's using the virus crisis to crush public sector unions. You've probably heard that Mitch McConnell wants states to declare bankruptcy instead of getting rescue funds from the federal government. Now, he's not worried about running up the deficit. He hates public sector unions. McConnell pressed his idea during an interview on Hugh Hewitt's syndicated radio show, arguing that much of the financial strain faced by some states is a result of runaway pension obligations and that several U.S. cities have used bankruptcy provisions to restructure their finances. Targeting the pensions of state workers. For the most part, these pensions are protected because they're part of union contracts. Republicans say if you can gut pensions then not only will you reduce state spending, but you can crush unions at the same time. Legally, though, the only way to do this is part of a bankruptcy restructuring. As far as McConnell's concerned, COVID-19 has an upside. By wrecking state finances, it will force them into bankruptcy. So this is why Mr. Trump is so insistent that the states take the responsibility because if it costs them a lot of money, they're bankrupted. That means Republicans can get their revenge on public sector unions who are big supporters of Democrats. Okay, keep it in mind. Mr. McConnell is also limiting or refusing to fund the post office 
and skew that would skew the census. It would skew the election if people vote by mail. So the post office is a target. These people don't give up. Billionaire Bonanza. As a percentage of wealth, billionaire taxes have fallen 79%. So billionaires are not paying their share. As the pandemic-fueled U.S. unemployment rate approaches 15%, America's billionaire class is experiencing a wealth surge, according to a new Institute for Policy study. As more as 26 million U.S. workers lost their job, combined wealth of America's billionaires increased by 308 billion, 10.5% increase. After a brief decline, the collective wealth of 614 U.S. billionaires has surpassed their 2019 levels. So these people are making money. The wealth surge is unprecedented in modern financial history. Jeff Bezos had increased his wealth by $25 billion since January 1st, 2020. Just that gain is more than the gross dom domestic product of Honduras. The nation's wealthiest 170 billionaires have seen their wealth increase by tens of millions of dollars. As part of a program of just recovery, we should press for a bottom-up people's stimulus program. Creation of a Pandemic Profiteering Oversight Committee. Oh, yes. Enact an excess profits tax. Levy an emergency millionaire surtax. That would be a good one, huh? Create a charity stimulus. Crack down on the hidden wealth system, capital flight, and wealth hiding. As much as $21 trillion in wealth is now sitting in offshore tax havens. Ah. It's enough to make you lose your jaw. Well, it's about 11.30. Let's see what else we got on Facebook on the labor beat. Get mad people. I struck a nerve. The U.S. comedian who's ran against COVID-19 viruses went viral. Okay. If you object to uh, picturesque language, cover your ears. This is a, an angry working person. 
who's got it all figured out in a rap. Our fucking money, not yours, it's ours. We paid that in taxes for everything we do every fucking day. So, okay. Look at the typical family, mortgage payment, health care payment, car payments, electric, water, garbage, phone, blah, 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 blah. So maybe, maybe the 1200 covers the mortgage. But what about all the other costs that we have each month? This $1,200 thing isn't doing shit for the normal working family. You want to help? Here's one idea. Tell the fucking banks and mortgage companies to stop all mortgage payments at this time. Just stop them. And don't give me that three-month furlough bullshit. How does that even make sense? So someone who lost their job because you said to stay at home doesn't pay mortgage for three months, but in the fourth month, they have to not only pay that month that's due, but also the three months they owed in full because it was furloughed. How the fuck does that help, you greedy cocksuckers? Someone was just unemployed and not earning money for three months. They weren't earning money. Hello? Now they just start back to work and all that money magically appears so they can pay the three months in a lump sum. How are they fucking paying that? Are you fucking idiots? Look, it almost makes sense that they can stop paying the current mortgage due for the month when they go back to work. But they can't pay the prior three months. They had no income. So here's the idea. Just add the three fucking months of the furlough to the back end of the loan. So if they had, let's say, 19 years and six months left in their mortgage, just add the three months. So now they have 19 years and nine months. How fucking hard is that? You'll get your money, you shitbags. It's just delayed. The working stiff wins if you do that. It really helps. It actually helps. And what is up with these banks and lending assholes? I mean, come on. You literally make billions of dollars in profit quarterly. That's every three months. The last crash was 10 years ago. So have so you have 10 years of massive profits and you need a bailout after two weeks of a shutdown? How come we, the people, have to save for a rainy day, but you save nothing? Every fucking quarter that you made $3 billion in profit. Profit, not income. Profit. And all that means you paid all your salaries and bills and everything you needed to pay to run a company for three fucking months. So every time you made... Three Three billion and a quarter. If you had just put one billion in the bank, you'd have forty billion in the bank after ten years. That's not even including interest. But no, you greedy cocksuckers have to get bailed out again from our taxpayer money, and then you shouldn't us by not giving us a real break on our mortgages, credit card bills, or car payments or anything. And the government allows this. We get fucked. We bail you out. We get fucked. Rinse, lather, repeat. You dirtneck fucking pieces of shit should have had more than enough money to keep paying your workers. And give everyone a break in mortgage payments the way I said for the time being. And again, I'm not saying to wipe the slate clean. I'm saying to just add the missing mortgage payment to the back end of everyone's loans. Do it for everything. The car lease is now three months longer. The credit card payment is now three months longer. The mortgage payment is now three months longer. You want to help the American worker, you can eliminate all payments due until this is over. That way, unemployment and stimulus checks would only be needed for food. That is what the American family needs now. That would help us, you greedy cocksuckers and you government lackeys who suck the balls of the big corporations and shit on the people are just as bad. Shame on you all. There could be a real plan in place, a real plan to get people through these next few months, a real plan to be testing, a real plan to allow workers who are considered non-essential to not worry about catching a virus and losing their house. Do you do the right fucking thing, you peckerheads, having to tell the government what to do because they have their heads in their asses. That's what fucking ticks me off. Now that rant by Dick Benichetta, he is a performer, he is a comic, used to drawing a big crowd, but he didn't expect 
that a recent video of his would go viral. His face is red and he barely finishes a sentence before he is tripping over the next, but listen to what he has to say. The real angry American worker, like all of us, should be angry. And all of us should look around and see how we can demand to be treated with some dignity, to be working people and people. Rick DeBitetta, DeBitetta, Thank you very much, Vic. Vic says, I struck a nerve with that one. Yeah, I would say he had. Huh? All right. Radio Labor. Keys are in, Robbie. Empty minting. Just wanted to get that one in there. That's a little bit of uh, Huey Lewis in the news with uh, working for a living.
Labor History, April 24th. Dock crews to halt work in support of death row inmate. The case for Mumi Abu-Jamal. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1999. A headline from the Los Angeles Times declared dock crews to halt work in support of death row inmate. Up and down the West Coast, the ports stood silent. The International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union had called their members off the job for a one-day strike. They did this to protest the death sentence for Mumia Abdul-Jamal. Mumia was a black activist and journalist who was on death row accused of killing a police officer in Philadelphia. Yet many peace and justice activists in the United States and beyond have questioned the evidence leading to his conviction. In October of 1998, the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court rejected an appeal from Mumia. Jack Heyman, a member of the executive board of the Longshoremen's Union in San Francisco, explained the context of his union's protest in a piece he wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle. He wrote, quote, labor and minorities share a common history of being victimized by the criminal justice system in this country. Both have long been aware of police repression and the unequal use of the death penalty against minorities and the poor. From the Haymarket martyrs who rallied workers for the eight-hour day to Harry Bridges, the Longshore Union leader targeted for deportation for being a red to the Black Panther Party whose program of self-defense put it on the FBI's list. In San Francisco, Longshoremen chanted, an injury to one is an injury to all. Free Mumia Abu-Jamal. Protests against Mumia's execution took place across Europe in cities like London, Madrid, Dublin, and Amsterdam, and by unions in France, Brazil, and South Africa. After 30 years on death row, Mumia's sentence was commuted to life without parole. He is still in prison. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1956. That was the day of the founding of the Canadian Labor Congress. Today, the Canadian Labor Congress is the largest labor organization in Canada, representing some 3.3 million workers. During the early 1950s, labor leaders in Canada were becoming increasingly uneasy about the rising influence of big business in the country. They knew that labor must stand united as a force representing the interests of workers for safe job sites and fair wages. In 1953, the country's two major labor organizations decided to form a unity committee. The Trades and Labor Congress of Canada had been focused on craft unionism, much like the AFL in the United States. The Canadian Congress of Labor emphasized industrial organizing, similar to that of the CIO in the U.S. The goal of the unity committee was to promote cooperation between these two Canadian labor groups and explore a possible merger. In 1955, labor leaders from the United States also recognized the importance of union solidarity to stand as a counterweight to the rise of big business in the U.S. The AFL and CIO merged. The next year, the Canadian merger was also complete. 
In Canada, the early Canadian Labour Congress had strong representation among manufacturing, transportation, and mining workers. Later, they organized more public sector workers, such as postal workers, nurses, police, and firefighters. By the late 1990s, the Canadian Labour Congress represented 2.5 million workers from 51 different unions. Each year on April 28th, the Canadian Labour Congress holds a national day of mourning. The day is set aside to remember all of the Canadian workers killed on the job. In the 1950s, labour solidarity was on the march on both sides of the Canadian border. All right, that's labor history, the formation of the Canadian Labor Congress, a big moment for working people. And um, the 1999 demonstration uh, boycott of shipping for one day in honor of Momia Abu-Jamal, who's still in prison, and who was granted some kind of a stay of execution, but not his freedom. Another political prisoner who remains in, free in jail is Leonard Peltier. No matter what, no matter what Peltier, what the inconsistencies of his entire prosecution were, they're not going to let him out because a couple of FBI men died. And they're blaming that on Leonard Peltier, even though other people, another man has insisted that he did the shooting, not Peltier. And the beat goes on. I wrote a story once about how every year Leonard Peltier, the years pass and Leonard Peltier did not get older. All his guards and everyone... <laughs> died all his friends and family, but he remained. He didn't die. Okay, this is Labor and Love Radio where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have representation at the negotiating table, you're on the menu and you're out of work. Chances are. So remember the lesson of our song, The Way to Song. Remember, uh, we're all working people. We're all in this together. The only way out of it is for us to help one another and provide for one another. Okay.
you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. 
So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Tired of paying too much for your internet? Contracts and hidden fees got you down? Tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet? Get Monkey Brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data, bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, and 100% net neutral. Residential internet for only $35 a month. Business packages starting at $75 a month. Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today. Hey, everybody. Listen to the weekly review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Let's Spiegelman. We're hosts of <laughs> YouTube uh, with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. 5% yeah, right. I'm so time. lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Let's watch full length. All right, let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next month. download a podcast and you
and on the go. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Why not make a donation? Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and pile them out. You're welcome. Flat Black Plastic Mutiny Radio.